When the Andrea Gale left the town harbor of Gloucester, Massachusetts on September 20th, 1991 and headed into the North Atlantic, no one could have known that the fishing boat would never be seen again. Only a bit of debris was ever found and the six crew members of the vessel vanished forever. In his book, The Perfect Storm, author Sebastian Younger immortalized the fate of the Andrea Gale. A film followed, but the real star of the book and the movie was the storm itself. A terrifying, relentless oppressor born of fierce wind and mountainous waves. No wonder meteorologists called it the perfect storm. Three deadly elements came together in October of 1991, a front moving from Canada toward New England, a high-pressure system building over Canada's east coast, and the dying remnants of Hurricane Grace churning along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Strong weather was coming from three of the four points of the compass and all of it converging on this small fishing vessel, the Andrea Gale. On their own, warm air and cold air and moist air are hardly unique or hardly noticeable, but when wind patterns force them together, the result can be lethal. And the last radio transmission of Billy Tyne, the captain of the fishing boat, came at 6 p.m. on October 28, 1991. He reported his coordinates to the captain of his sister ship, the Hannah Bowden, saying, she's coming, she's coming on, boys. And she's coming on strong. The book and the movie brought the term the perfect storm into common usage. But the concept is as old as humanity because people have always had to deal with the convergence of multiple rough circumstances. So much can go so wrong, so quickly that we shake our heads and use the expression, when it rains, it pours. None of us are immune to the storms of life. And in Mark chapter six, we see the disciples of Jesus in the midst of the storm. And like all of the miracles of Jesus, this struggle and his rescue shows us something about who Jesus is And it teaches us something about how he interacts with us in the storms of life. So open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 6. We have a short little account this morning, starting in Mark 6, 45. And follow along as I read. It says this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. That crowd is the 5,000 men, women, and children that he had just fed. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind had, was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But 
When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages and cities or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Already experiencing significant weariness, Jesus and his disciples had just spent the day with 5,000 men plus their wives and children. The spiritual hunger of those people was palpable, and the physical hunger became real. And Jesus showed them that he is able to satisfy all the types of hunger that we have in this life as he taught them God's word and as he fed them through a miracle. And in verses 45 and 46, it says that he immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. It would seem that they didn't necessarily want to go, but he made them and they obeyed. That's sort of bizarre with all the people around. You might expect that it would be good for Jesus to keep the 12 disciples with him. But nevertheless, they obeyed and they went on their way. And that little detail could be important later. The crowds continued to press in, but Jesus dismissed them John 6 gives us the account of this event. and He actually tells us that the crowds thought that Jesus was a mighty prophet and they were going to take him by force and make him the king. And so Jesus had come preaching a message to repent and turn from your sin because the kingdom of God is at hand. And now the people actually want to make him a king. But he resists them because... His kingdom is not the type of kingdom that they have in mind. And so in the midst of the weariness, and now a significant amount of pressure from the crowd trying to make him the king, he sends everyone away. Sends his disciples ahead on the boat. He sends the crowds away. And he retreats to the mountain to pray. We don't know what he prayed for. But you can imagine some of the things that would make sense. You can imagine that Jesus might pray in that moment for strength. It's interesting that his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature, and how that interacts with his humanity is a mystery to us. I mean, he is able and all-powerful to the point where he can multiply food, and yet he himself still gets hungry. He prays and seeks strength from his father, the one who is able to give. 
Perhaps Jesus felt all the pressure of the crowds and he prayed that God would keep him faithful to the mission and to his focus that is at hand. I mean, the people were starting to see all of this power that Jesus was exhibiting. Many wanted him to use it in ways that he did not intend it to be used. They wanted their kingdom, not God's kingdom. So perhaps Jesus on the mountain alone in the midst of weariness prayed for the will of his father to be accomplished and to be strengthened on that path. Prayer is the privilege of all of God's children, and yet it's so often minimized, forgotten, or ignored. I think of the tale of the small town that had historically been known as a dry town. But then a local businessman decided to build a tavern. And the group of Christians from a local church were concerned and they planned an all-night prayer meeting to ask God to intervene. And it just so happened that shortly thereafter, lightning struck the tavern and burned it all the way to the ground. And the owner of the bar sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible But the church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. And the presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. (laughs) Martin Luther once said, pray as if everything depends on God and then work as if everything depends on you. If Jesus relied on his father and expressed that through prayer, that's probably a pretty good idea for us to do the same. As he concludes his time with his father in solitude, he looked up or looked down, I should say, upon the lake. Perhaps the moon was shining bright and the beam was right through the area that the disciples were rowing. John 6 is specific about how far they've gotten by then. It's about three to three and a half miles out. But now the storm was upon them. And it says in verse 47, when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. It's such a short description that it's almost um, easy to gloss over how difficult the struggle of the storm might be. Because when you start to do the quick calculations, you realize that Jesus had probably dismissed them seven to eight hours ago. The sails were up at the time. The wind had changed, however. The storm had rolled in, and now they were being pushed further and farther away from their destination. They surely had dropped the sails by now, and they started to row. But if you've ever rowed a large boat into the wind, then you know how much of a painful and frustrating this experience can be. The feeling of exerting all of your strength to solve the problem, to get to the destination, just to keep moving forward, and minute after minute, hour after hour, you're driving the oars in and through the water and pulling back so that every muscle in your arms and your backs and your legs is starting to burn, but there's very little ground being made. 
Sometimes life feels that way. Maybe you feel that way even today. Maybe you're pushing forward, expending all of your effort, exerting all of your resources, but you aren't gaining any ground. Life is hard. And the storms are real. Maybe some of us are feeling like we're struggling with our health and we keep trying and we keep visiting doctors and we keep pursuing the results, but the wind is just blowing against us. Perhaps your marriage is a struggle and you just can't get forward momentum, but you aren't giving up and the storm is all around you. Maybe it's that sin that you just can't seem to gain victory over. You've fallen prey to temptation. You resolved that this was the last time, but then before long, you stumble and fall again. And the struggle is ongoing and the guilt is building and you feel like you're in the storm. And what's interesting about these disciples is how they got into the storm. They got into this mess because they were being obedient to Jesus. You see, sometimes the storms in life are self-created and they're the consequences of our actions. But other times... The storms of life can come upon us when we are doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. If the disciples had disobeyed Jesus, they would have most likely had a quiet night around the fire, recounted the activities of the day, had some stories and some laughter, had a hot meal and a good, solid, long rest. And instead... Because they obeyed, they're dripping wet, they're exhausted, they're physically rowing for hours, they're making little ground, they're scared, and they're miserable, and they're wondering if this is possibly going to ever end. Their obedience to the Lord brought them into the storm. Sometimes your obedience to the Lord will bring you into the storm as well. And you might not even see it coming. And in that moment, there's a very real choice to be made. I could choose the short-term comfort and take the route of disobedience, or I could trust him in the middle of and through the storm. Eugene Peterson speaks about the dynamics of obedience this way. He said, at the age of 35, I bought running shoes and began enjoying the smooth rhythms of long-distance running. Soon, I was competing in 10K races every month or so, and then a marathon once a year. By then, I was subscribing to and reading three running magazines. And then I pulled a muscle, and I couldn't run for a couple of months. Those magazines were still all over the house, but I never opened one. The moment 
I resumed running, though, I started reading again. And that's when I realized that my reading was an extension of something I was a part of. I was reading, he says, for companionship and affirmation of the experience of running. I learned a few things along the way, but mostly it was to deepen my world of running. If I wasn't running, there was nothing to deepen. So there's a parallel here with reading scripture and hearing and obeying God. He said, if I'm not living in an active response or obedience to the living God, then reading about his creation, his salvation, his holiness won't hold my interest for very long. But the most important question isn't, what does it mean? But it is, what can I obey? (laughs) Simple obedience will open up our lives to the truth of Scripture more quickly than any number of Bible studies, dictionaries, or concordances. There's a good lesson here about the nature of obedience. If the disciples had disobeyed and sought their short-term comfort, they would have missed something and would have never seen or experienced or gained from what was about to happen. They would have missed an opportunity to see Jesus for who he really is. They would have missed an opportunity to see the magnificence of the fact that he is God. Their short-term comfort would have cost them long-term gain. And so it is for you and so it is for me. If we choose disobedience, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to see just how the Lord of the universe is going to display his glory in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus does as he comes to the rescue. Look at verse 48. It says, he saw they were making headway painfully. The wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Jesus does, in these few short verses, something that only God can do. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The struggle had gone on long enough. Could he have gone down there earlier? Yep. Did he? Nope. Could he rescue you out of the storms in your life earlier? Yep. Sometimes he does. And sometimes there's an opportunity for us to learn in the struggle. And so Jesus comes to them after the struggle has been going on long enough, walking on water. The experience of his true power is being displayed again. The first time 
that they were in a storm with Jesus. You might remember he was sleeping in the boat and the focus of the story was on the great power of his word to still the sea and have authority over nature. And here, the greater focus is on his identity and his power. He shows them very plainly he is God. And he does so in three ways. Number one, only God can walk on water. Period. It seems obvious. It might feel trite to read it in just a couple of verses, but just as only God can forgive sins, just as only God can fulfill the nature of the Sabbath, just as only God has the power to miraculously multiply food, walking on water shows that Jesus walks only where God walks. The second way he shows them that he does only what God can do, is in his verbal self-disclosure and affirmation. As he walks, he speaks to them. But he identifies himself in a very particular way that is quite striking. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Or in the Greek, that little phrase, ego eimi, which is the self-revealed name of God. It literally translates, I am. In the Hebrew, Yahweh. And so Jesus is in the midst of the storm. The disciples have now been struggling for hours. He walks three miles into the middle of the lake and... He says, take heart, it is I, and I am God. So you do not need to be afraid. By his own words, he identifies himself as the divine. He not only walks where God walks, but he also takes his name. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was passing them by. That's a really peculiar start part of the story, isn't it? Jesus is walking on the water. The disciples think he's a ghost. He, is, he assures them of who he is. And it says that as he was walking, he meant to pass them. It's kind of a cruel prank by God. But why would he do that? Well, I think here you have another allusion to the way that God shows himself to his people in the Old Testament. You see at Mount Sinai, God is with Moses on the mountain and Moses is communing with God and he boldly asks God, in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And God responds this way. In Exodus 33, 21, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
In Exodus 33, 19, he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In Exodus 40, 34, 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God passes before Moses as he is revealing who he is. He does it again at Mount Horeb, the self-revelation of God to the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 19.11, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. You see, God's self-disclosure to his chosen people was as he passed in front of them or passed by. And if he had addressed them face to face, if God had turned to Moses and squared up with him, he would have been consumed by his glory. And so he passed by so that the engaging experience of his glory and his goodness would be known and he would live to tell about it. And now, the God-man, Jesus, is allowing his disciples to experience a glimpse of divine glory as he passes them by while walking on the water. There is an awesome separation between God and humanity. God can do what humanity could never dream of doing. This is why Job says in Job chapter 9, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. God is completely other than you and me. His power is supreme. His glory is unimaginable. And Jesus displays that type of power and glory and reality in his very own person. And what this means for those disciples in that day and what it means for you and for me today is very simply this. When you are in the storms of life, cling to Jesus because he has the divine power to see you through. When you're in the storms of life, cling to him because he's the one that has all the power to see you through. And that's exactly what he does in this instance. Jesus calms the storm. He hops in the boat. They continue on to Gennesaret. He displays his nature and his power and more healing. But the question remains, why did Jesus send the disciples ahead and make them experience the storm? Why? 
just because he wanted some alone time to pray? No. It tells us in Mark 51 and 52 that he got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. And here's the reason. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's astounding. They had just seen him mere hours ago multiply food to feed thousands of people. And apparently they were amazed by the miracle, but they didn't see the miracle worker for who he really was. Before that, they had gone out commissioned by Jesus to preach and to heal and cast out demons, things that they would have never, ever done before, things that created in them this incredible experience of supernatural power. But they didn't recognize that the Jesus who had sent them was actually God. It says their hearts were hardened. And so he sends them into the storm so that they will see his divine nature. In the storms of life, cling to Jesus because he has divine power to see you through. I wonder if maybe you are the one who has seen the work of God but not bended the knee to his son as God. I think a lot of people see incredible things that God does in the world by his hands, but their heart is hardened. They don't recognize the deity of Jesus and thus the need to follow him. And then they forget about those works of God. I think a lot of people hear the words of Christ Come to him if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, he says. Or the words to turn away from your sins and seek the forgiveness that he alone can offer you because he loves you. Or the implication that if Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God and he himself is the king of that kingdom, then we're called to follow him with our lives instead of just living our own lives our own way. I think a lot of people hear those things. But because their heart is hardened, Like the disciples, they fail to acknowledge him with the level of severity and awe and wonder and glory that he deserves. So what about you? Is your heart hardened or is it soft toward Jesus? Are you seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not acknowledging? Ask God to soften your heart to his son and make the choice to follow him as your king and as your God. And what do you do if you're in the storm right now? How do you prepare for the storm when it comes? Because where you turn when you're in the midst of the crisis reveals who you really trust in or what you really trust in. You're in the midst of the crisis You can turn all kinds of different directions while you're grasping for control, grasping for health, grasping for relief. 
And where you turn reveals where your trust is. You have the opportunity, friends, if you're in the storm right now, to cling to Jesus, to cling to the one who has divine power, the one who also loves you. Though the struggle might be long, it might be longer than you want it to be, and it has been for so many of us, he will come at the right time. I think there's another point of application that's helpful here. It's a helpful reminder to to recognize that sometimes Jesus calls us to enter into the storm and only when we do so in full obedience will you see his divine power in your life. And that makes the struggle worth it. So if you're in the storm, cling to him call to him, acknowledge his divine power and his watch care over you and look to the one who displays glory upon glory as he walks on water and passes you by only to climb into the boat and still the storm of your life. In the storms of life, cling to Jesus because he has the divine power to see you through. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for the times that we minimize or so casually think of your son as something less than he is. God, we thank you for displays of his glory. Stir within us, God, a heart and a mind that does not merely acknowledge with our mind that he is God, but lives in the reality of his divine power and might and encourage us in this, that our Savior does not leave us on the sea to struggle against the wind forever. Deliver those who need deliverance from the storm, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.